0: Hello and welcome to Unofficial Partner, the Sports Business Podcast. I'm Richard Gillis. Today's guests are Baroness Tanny Gray-Thompson and Ben Rogers, co-founder of the lobbying group Hong Kong Watch. The topic is sports relationship with China, diplomatic and sporting boycotts, sports washing, the limits and opportunity of athlete activism, the IOC's handling of the Peng Shui situation, and we ask, ultimately, what is the purpose of the IOC and the Olympic movement in 2022? (laughs) So the obvious context for the conversation is Beijing and the Beijing Games. I guess the question more broadly, we're talking about sports relationship to China. But before we get to the broad stuff, I wonder if I could ask both of you just to outline where you sit in this debate. Tani, can we start with you? What's your first instinct and how you approach this issue?
1: Whenever we talk about boycott, I think the first thing most people think about is an athlete boycott because they're the ones that sort of make a difference. I'm not convinced athlete boycotts work because actually the reality is for for the countries that might win medals that we don't win, they're quite happy for our athletes not to be there. Probably more true in the summer games than the winter. I think there's a much bigger discussion on where the games should be awarded in the first place and the role that the IOC, the IPC has in that, the role of sponsors because actually, when you look at it in terms of accreditation at games times, the athletes are the lowest of the low in, in their, their ability to influence. They, they have an ability to influence once they've had their career. And I think it's important that athletes use their platform for that. But I think boycotts are quite transitory. And I've never been convinced they change anybody's behaviour. OK,
0: Ben, I want to ask you the same question. Before you do, you better just put into context for us and the audience, Hong Kong Watch. Sure. Hong Kong Watch is a human rights advocacy organisation that
2: I co-founded four years ago uh, to raise awareness about the situation in Hong Kong, to inform parliamentarians and policymakers, not only in Westminster, but also in Washington, Ottawa, Canberra, the EU, the UN. My approach to this, I agree very much with Tani. I, I have called for a diplomatic boycott, and I'm really uh, pleased to see the U.S., uh, Canada, Australia, the U.K., Lithuania, uh, Belgium now. I think as well, all saying they will not send uh, any government officials. I think that's uh, quite right. And ideally, the games should not have been awarded to China because this is a regime that is now accused credibly of genocide against the Uyghurs, uh, dismantling freedoms in Hong Kong, the disappearance of of the tennis uh, star Peng Shuai. So ideally, it shouldn't be taking place. Clearly, uh, it's not going to be moved now. So I I welcome a diplomatic boycott. I hope other governments will go that way. I, I would encourage a consumer boycott, a boycott of the corporate sponsors. Spectators should consider whether or not, probably with COVID, they won't be able to go anyway, but they should probably stay away. But I haven't called for an athlete's boycott, because I think, uh, firstly, I recognise that this is a big moment for athletes. They've been training for it for a long time. The furthest I've gone is to appeal to individual athletes to consider what they should do and to go with their own consciences. And if they do take part, I hope they might use the platform that they have after the Games, not while they're there, because it'd be extremely dangerous to do but once they've left China after the Games, to then consider how they could speak out on the issues. and.
0: That's as far as I would go. What is a diplomatic boycott? Just so I'm clear. What does it mean?
2: As I understand it, essentially it means that no government ministers or government officials will attend.
0: So I was listening to Seb Co, Lord Co, on the radio a couple of weeks ago. He was talking about in the context of the Peng Shui issue. And he was suggesting that actually he prefers quiet diplomacy in these issues he doesn't like grandstanding he doesn't like statements he doesn't like boycotts and yet he wants ministers having one-to-one face time with the communist party a diplomatic boycott that's the worst of both worlds isn't it it means that you don't get you get the statement which is a weaker statement than a sort of complete boycott but you also don't get the supposed benefits of talking to those people
1: face to face tanny is that a fair summary i think at games time the ability for government ministers to actually sit down and have those one-to-one conversations are quite limited, because actually the reason our government ministers are there are going to support the athletes, to be perfectly honest, and to see the events. I think you have to think very carefully how much quiet diplomacy works, and, and there is a place for it, but I think that is away from games time. Sebco's got personal experience of being asked to, to boycott Moscow Olympics, and he chose not to. So Colin Moynihan, who was in the debate we had recently, was in a similar position. They've got personal experience of it. I'm pretty certain quite diplomacy has been going on for quite a long time. And actually, what has it changed for the Uyghurs? Not an awful lot, to be perfectly honest. Something Ben said about athletes using their platform. I, I think the one advantage athletes have, they travel the world. They see lots of different cultures, how different people live. For me, I saw when I traveled how disabled people are treated in in different countries. I think there is more that we could do as a country to to educate the athletes, to understand the, the countries and the jurisdictions they're going into and the issues. Because actually some of the athletes, um, by nature of being in sport, they're quite young. They don't maybe have the broadest education and, and the understanding of these things. And I'm a really firm believer in, in educating the athletes to understand how they use their platform. And at the moment, it's fascinating because there's lots of people who know athletes should use their platform but it tends to be from the governing bodies that like the platform that the athlete is using and talking about. So actually, it's really important that we athletes have an understanding of this, so they can speak from it from a better position of knowledge. And actually, I think you start talking to athletes, and you start saying, what's happening to the Uyghurs? And there's this moment where they, they stop. It's not athletes don't care, they care about a lot of things. It's just within the bizarre life of an elite athlete, you don't always have time to be educated.
0: I think that's a really interesting point because we're we live in this world and the people who are listening to this podcast and live particularly live in this world that the case study de jure of a great athlete activist is someone like Marcus Rashford for example and no one certainly not me is arguing against what he's doing but that has encouraged a sort of this is what we do now this is how an athlete should behave now find a cause that you care about and then use your platform now Then the cynical view is that actually that's an enormously powerful marketing platform because we're living in a world where brands want to be seen to be more than just selling us fizzy drinks and burgers and beer. And they want to have a purpose. So the brand purpose movement is very strong. And that is, again, an incentive in this marketplace for athletes to pick up a cause. And what you're saying, Tani, is actually the bit before they start to shout about things or make demonstrations is missing. That's quite worrying. Ben, is that a role for lobbying groups? How, how do you fill that gap?
2: Yeah, I think certainly advocacy groups, lobbying groups have, have a role to play to, as Tani said, to to help educate athletes in the issues and encourage them to consider what causes they take up. Definitely.
1: I think it's one of those things that not every athlete has the ability to protest. You know, what Marcus Rashford did I think was amazing. He, he, he could have done it and it could have got some of his mates together, all chucking a chunk of money. But he's also got to recognise he's in a financial position, that he can do that. The vast majority of Olympic and Paralympic athletes have no money to fall back on. And this doesn't make it right. But if you take a stance that your sponsors, your governing body, people around you don't agree with, that is your career gone as, as well. Yeah, it, it it's a challenge because... You you also have to think about long term, and I, I, no, it was a completely different era. But I was travelling when Rwanda happened, and I was in the States. Not a single mention of it anywhere. And that's pre-internet. But I remember coming back to the UK, being totally shocked by the stuff that happened. And a few years later, I went to Rwanda. I had the ability to do that. This comes back to the education and helping athletes understand the world they're going into. And I would say most athletes should have had my dad as a dad. When I was going to a different country I'd never been to before, he used to make me go to the library and take out books And read about the history and the city that I was going to and things like that. And I think actually stuff like that should be part of an elite athlete development programme to to understand the context of of the world that they're living in, which is very political. Anyone who says sport and politics are not connected is fibbing. Sport and politics is inextricably connected. And I always say there is more politics in sport than in politics. So the question then, if we go to the level of governing body,
0: because if you've got vulnerable young athletes who could be manipulated in this scenario for either way, this is a problem created by the IOC, presumably. They've gone to China. They've decided to go to China in the first place. And this is not, it's them, but it's also several other major governing bodies. But what is the solution? The IOC always comes back with, yes, but we are, sport for the world. And we've got enormous number of constituencies. And we are about engagement rather than shunning regimes. Ben, what do you want from governing bodies, I guess is the question.
2: I think in the future, I would want to see governing bodies really looking at the choice of location holistically and and looking at the human rights record of that country alongside other factors. And I think that they should also be prepared to be more prepared to listen when they do make a decision to award the Games to a particular country. Uh, And when there is an outcry, as there has been over the decision to give the Games to China, but for much of the past at least 12 months, many voices have been saying to the IOC, can you rethink this? And they didn't. And so I hope in the future that A, they will be more careful with the choices and and B, when they do make a choice that uh, causes an outcry, they'd be a bit more responsive to the
0: views that are being expressed. Does sports washing work in your opinion, Ben? Do you think it's a, it's a term that gets banded around a lot in relation to, you know, Saudi Arabia is a is another question. We've just had a we've had Grand Prix there, golf there. It's a perennial Newcastle been taken over by Saudi or a group acting on behalf of them. But let's just keep it to China. Does it work as a strategy, do you think? I think it
2: certainly helps to highlight the the issues and there is there is a case to be made that personally I think the the games shouldn't have been given to China but now that they are taking place in China actually we should be doing everything we can to use the uh, opportunity that we have around the games to highlight the appalling situation of the Uyghurs, the deteriorating situation in Hong Kong, Tibet, all the other human rights issues. So in a sense, it it provides, it provides does provide that platform to talk about the issues. Does it make a difference in terms of putting pressure on the Chinese regime? I think, again, they don't being exposed and they don't like being criticised. So it, it doesn't necessarily stop
0: their behaviour, but it does increase the international pressure on them. Tani,
1: do you think sports washing works as a, from the point of view of the sort of dictatorships or the regimes it's very good sort of internal pr in terms of the number of medals that that china will win at both olympics and paralympics i look they didn't really compete in the paralympics until 2004 and then since then they've topped the medal table and will probably forever because they probably have 80 million plus disabled people in china it it's interesting china didn't have any social programs for disabled people and you still can't argue that it does but for the limited number of disabled athletes who compete at the Paralympics, it's changed their lives in a way that it hasn't changed British Paralympians' lives. You can't weigh that up again. It's not a yin and yang between, OK, a few disabled, a couple hundred disabled people's lives have changed versus genocide. I think it's time for the IOC to think about what the Olympics are meant to be. Previously, they never talked about legacy. You just look at Athens, even Sydney, the the building legacy of the games wasn't there they've only more recently applied it and I'd have to say that's par- partly because of London London had to have a legacy in terms of re reusing the, the, the buildings how big do the games need to be how what are sports are, are going to be at the games it, it's interesting the IOC are in a challenging place because it used to be they only awarded the games seven years before now they're doing it a lot more in advance they they had to award the games to paris because paris was about they'd had enough of bidding to be perfectly honest la was the same now the fact they've awarded to australia so many years out it it means that the countries that can afford to put on the games and and there are financial benefits but you've got to put a lot of money up front countries that don't have necessarily the best human rights records i'm not saying about that australia or, or usa or paris but with the winter games china you know that there are places, there's not a huge amount of countries in the world that can afford to put the billions into it. So maybe it's time for the IOC to step back and think about, okay, what do they really want the games to be?
0: Gold medals, but just before we move on, I was to Tim Hollingsworth on this podcast and we were talking about the value of gold medals as a symbol. We've had a generation of incentives in the UK sport is largely pushing the winning of medals. And that was the inspiration story. And he made the point that Paralympic gold medals are, or Paralympic medals as an incentive is far more important. There's a different agenda there, which you've just articulated, that it's a symbol that is more significant potentially than an Olympic medal. But what do you think about the value of medals now? As you say, China likes them. Dictatorships like them because it's a national ego thing, which I guess it always was. But have you, has your view changed on Olympic medals?
1: The the medal table is you know, the, the, the most political thing of all, because every we compare where we are to everybody else. And I don't think anyone wants to go back to the time of Atlanta where GB won a single gold in the Olympics, did really well in the Paralympics, everyone forgets that. The fact that the USA order their medal table in a different way, they do it on the number of medals won because they come higher up the medal table if they do that. The, the gold medal stuff is quite complicated. and I was part of the process of being, being an ex-athlete. This is a much, much wider discussion about how many medals is enough. How how many medals should a country our size aim to win? Do we want, yeah, we could be top of the medal table at the summer games, but it would involve taking kids away from their families at two and putting them in training camps, as they do in other countries around the world. So there's this big debate, how much are we prepared to do? And there's a cost to to winning the medals on athletes' mental health and well-being. So that takes us off into a, a huge tangent. I'm not sure there's a difference in the way the public perceive. Paralympic and Olympic medals, but, but the public love moments in time. They love, I I was saying to a friend recently, I remember where I was when in 2012, we GB won a medal in clay pigeon shooting and I was driving along the embankment and my husband rang me and went, Oh you know, and they, they love those moments, but actually it's what do we do to educate, you know, the public, Ben was saying about spectators, you can take this high moral stance of IOC decisions and all these things, okay, what do we buy from, from China? What do we as individuals buy? And actually that was raised in the debate we had recently in the law saying, stop. if you feel strongly about this, back it up with personal choice. And I, I think there's a lot of impact we can have in a different way beyond you know, where, where the games go. Okay,
0: so Ben, let's just follow that then. You're in favour of putting pressure on sponsors, the IOC sponsors, for example. Why? What's the aim of that?
2: Well, I think the aim is similar to the diplomatic boycott, although perhaps even more effective in terms of if corporate sponsors decide to withdraw from sponsoring the Games, that will really drive home a, a point to the Chinese regime that perhaps government ministers not showing up doesn't do, because they will f- feel ashamed, they will feel, of course, they'll f- probably find a, a Chinese sponsor to replace them. So the financial impact may not may not necessarily be that large. But I think it will Send a message that, particularly because of China's role in the the world economy and and its tendency, its its habit of of putting pressure on cor- corporations. We've seen this in recent years of companies that uh, have, for example, had Taiwan o- on a map, and they've come under huge pressure from the Chinese regime to to change their position on Taiwan. And a lot of them have caved in. I think if companies start trying, China- start standing up to the Chinese,
0: that would that would send a very strong message. So the the bit with this I struggle with is if I am in charge of Coca Cola, I think the trouble or the comms problem of an an Winter Olympics, in terms of scale, is miles away from you are not going to be in China, you're going to withdraw from China. So it feels like you're pushing corporates into a gesture, and I know gestures can be useful and important, but in the scale of things. I'm not sure how that tallies. And the other bit is whether or not China cares. It might punish the IOC, which might be the agenda, because it's their sponsors and it's, they're the ones that are getting the money from the sponsors on the whole. I don't, I'm not sure how that tallies. And it feels like we'll either go one all in, don't deal with China, full stop. Asking them to make a gesture around the Olympics. Who really cares about that? This is you know, where
1: it gets into the massive complexity of the issue uh, about what will bring about the most effective change. And sponsors, and I've worked with a number of the Olympic Paralympic sponsors. I wasn't a part of this. I worked in Beijing for the summer games. I did try to stay there for a a period of time to get a bit of an experience of, of what it's like. They actually as a someone with a British passport, you don't really get a a true experience of what life is there at at all. It's that honest conversation about why sponsors are part of the movement. They're there because, you know, they benefit from it. And yes, they help athletes and they do lots of other stuff, but it's a business decision. The question is, if you said to sponsors, okay, who would they choose? Would they choose to do business in China or would they choose to sponsor major games? They're, They're businesses. They'll do what's right for the business. You'd hope they, a lot of them make ethical decisions along the way, but also their businesses. So this is why it's a really complicated issue in terms of trying to figure out what will change the life of the Uyghurs. And if we had an answer to that, their lives would have changed as opposed to, you know, what we're seeing, which is forced sterilisation, prison camps and absolutely horrendous treatment. So... I, I, I don't know the answer to it, and I know a lot of really bright people who don't know the answer to it either. The fact now we're actually able to have a conversation about it is really important because, actually, in China, they can't have this conversation. When I went there, one of I've been many times, I went and I asked to go to Tiananmen Square. I was like, why? Because I want to see where the student protests were. And, and people weren't – the people I was with did not know about the student protests. And you go, okay. And for me, that's a useful reminder, actually – whether it's right to go there or not, and, and whether I educated the, the people in, in terms of what had happened, I've no idea. It's, I, don't, I just don't, I don't know the answer to any of this. I wish someone would, would, would help give me an answer.
0: Ben, what would help the Uyghur
2: Muslims? I certainly uh, agree with Tani that it's very hard to, to find one. I think there is no one single uh, answer. I think we, we have to use every tool in the toolbox uh, and although the focus uh, of this discussion and, and the focus uh, a lot in the media is on the upcoming Winter Games, that's just one part of, of the picture. The Uyghur Tribunal, which was an independent uh, tribunal chaired by Sir Geoffrey Nice, who had led the prosecution of Sobodan Milosevic, they came to the conclusion after a year of hearings and uh, in, in investigation that what is happening to the Uyghurs does amount to genocide. So we now have that finding from okay not an official body but still a, an extremely credible body of eminent experts and i think governments should now act upon that i think accountability is not easy but it's something that should be pursued how do we hold the chinese regime accountable for the crime of genocide and crimes against humanity i think one thing that uh, one practical thing that would uh, have some effect and and we ought to be doing is it's not realistic to to think of cutting off all economic ties with China. It's such a significant part of the world economy. But I think uh, targeted sanctions against Chinese companies that are uh, complicit with, with the genocide of the Uyghurs... Making sure that our own supply chains are not bringing into this country products that are made by Uyghur slave labor. The U.S. Congress has just passed a, a, a bill, I think yesterday, along those lines. So that's something that we ought to be doing more on. So there are a range of of those measures that I think over time could make a difference. But certainly, there's there's no magic, uh, there's no single magic one.
1: We need to continue talking about what's happening. Um, to the Uyghurs and to other people in China. My worry with this is there's a lot of talk about it until the Games, and then once the Games have gone, we move on to the next. We don't keep pushing this point, And, and I think that's the worry I have, is that we move on to the next issue, which is just horrendous.
2: Yeah, I very much agree with that, and I hope, as I said earlier, that although I think the Games shouldn't be taking place in China, since they will be, we should be talking about all these issues in the lead up to the games, as the games are happening, but make sure that we keep talking once the games are
0: over. And I'm just going to push us to the end, but we haven't mentioned the Peng Shui issue. And we've talked about what governing bodies can do and should do. And they quite often come into the conversation and are a sort of a punch bag for lots of these different issues. Now, the WTA and Steve Simon has made a strong statement in relation to China. Ben, when you read about that, do you think okay yes we want more of that, and I'm wondering that there's a follow-on question in terms of what the longer-term implications of that will be. But was your instinct okay yes that's a positive move very much so.
2: I I was quite pleasantly surprised because having seen how the IOC has has behaved, I didn't see the WTA's decision coming. And I think I think it's a courageous and absolutely right uh, decision. Of course, it's supported also by the fact that uh, so many major tennis players, both current and of previous generation, have been speaking out for Peng Shui. Everybody from Andy Murray to Martina Navratilova and Billie Jean King and and everyone in between. So the combination of Prominent tennis players from different generations and the WTA is a really powerful combination and I I hope we we would see more of this in the future.
1: It gets us into again a wider discussion on duty of care of elite athletes and sexual and abuse and bullying, which you know is one part of it. The other part is not discounting the fact that Peng Shui might be used in a, a wider political arguments on Chinese soil in terms of the future of the leader and all sorts of things unbelievably complicated I I think her disappearance is a real cause for worry I don't know the quiet diplomatic measures that the IOC and other bodies are taking into in terms to assure us of her safety but I think for that we've got to keep pushing really hard in terms of ensuring that she's in a a safe place. Actually, my personal preference would be out of China. Whether that can happen, I, I don't know. But I think this is where sport and politics is, again, inextricably linked in terms of whether she's been supported, manipulated, lo- lots of other things around it. I think it, it does shine a, a very bright light on um, the, the darker side of politics and sport. Just to find it to both you, were you comfortable
0: with the way Thomas Bach and the IOC handle that moment or are
1: handling it? The bit that is public, the bit that I know about, no, but I don't know what else. I, I I suppose the optimistic person in me would hope there is an awful lot more going on behind the scenes than a video call where she's saying she's fine. I'm not convinced by that. I, I, I sincerely hope there is a lot more happening than just a call going, you're all right, fine, let's all let's all move on. Yeah, it's not, it, I, I don't feel happy with That have been safe right now.
2: Yeah, I would entirely agree with that. Don't want to discount the possibility that, hopefully, as as Tani says, hopefully the IOC is doing things behind the scenes. But participating in that call and allowing that call to be used effectively as propaganda to to get the Chinese regime off the hook, I, I think was very unfortunate. And it didn't shed any light on the truth about her actual situation because. Hi, it's highly likely that the video call was. She took part in it through coercion, and she said she was fine because. And China has a, a long practice of forced televised confessions, uh, and in a sense, this is a, a different but similar. That she could well have been forced to take part in that call, tell everyone she was fine, and in reality, she she isn't. So I, I think, um, as Tanya says, I I hope there's more going on behind the scenes.
0: Okay, we all agree with that. Listen. Thank you so much for your time, both of you. Really, it's a really complex and difficult and challenging question. It might be the biggest question that sport faces, but you've shed some light, at least for me. But thank you very much for your time, Tanny. Thank you. And Ben. Thank you very much.